I want to give today a very special welcome to every person here at the Community Adventist Fellowship. And I want to give a great welcome to our viewers on 3ABN and our other networks across this great land of the United States and also, of course, Canada and down into the Caribbean. Today we're going to study Romans chapter 2. It is true that before one can appreciate the good news, one must understand the bad news. And this chapter today has got some bad news that presents some great news. I've said this to you before, let me say it again. There are two great truths that we all must learn. Number one, man is much worse than he ever feared to think. That's the theme of Romans 1, Romans 2. Man is much worse than he ever feared to think, but God is much better than he ever dared to hope. That's the gospel. Romans chapter 1, we noticed last week, concerns the world of the unchurched, the world of the Romans and the world of the Gentiles. Romans chapter 2, we will discover today, is not the world of the unchurched, it is the world of the church. It is the world of religious people. Now, these verses are so strong as they talk about the universality of sin, that before we notice these verses in Romans chapter 2, I want to give you a glimmer of the good news before we get into the bad news. There was a Sabbath school teacher who asked her little pupils the question, uh, who is good enough to go to heaven? And the children all responded, one little girl said, my mummy is good enough to go to heaven. Uh, somebody who obviously didn't know the church pastor as well as I did said, the church pastor is good enough to go to heaven. <laughs> but the Sabbath school teacher said to those potential little legalists, no one is good enough to go to heaven. We go to heaven because Jesus died in our place and he's the only one who is good enough. When you study this chapter today, Romans chapter 2, there's one thing that you will understand with me, that no person, whether he is a religious person or a non-religious person, is good enough to go to heaven. And that is why we stand in need of grace. Let me read to you from an historical document, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. This is one of the great truths, or one of the great papers, one of the great documents of the Christian Church. Question. This, of course, is a great Protestant declaration. Question. How art thou justified before God? Answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, and have never kept any of them, and that I am still prone always to all evil, Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin. 
and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. What a marvelous statement. It says that even though my heart condemns me, even though I've broken every one of the commandments of God, and even though I am prone to all evil, God accepts me if I come as a penitent in true faith to Jesus. Amen. Thus, I'm saved not just by faith, but I'm saved by faith and faith alone. I would like to mention at this stage that before we can stand on the Mount of Salvation, we must go down into the Valley of Humiliation. This is a chapter that the modern man does not like to read because it is a fiery denunciation of the sins of religious people. A preacher can be confident and assured and comfortable when he rails against the sins of Hollywood and against the sins of the world. But Romans chapter 2 is not dealing with the sins of the world. That is Romans 1. Romans chapter 2, my dear friend, is dealing with the sins of the people of God. Would you please come to Romans chapter 2 and verse 1 with me today to the great words of the greatest of the apostles, St. Paul. Romans chapter 2, and we will notice each of these verses. Romans 2 and verse 1. He turns to the people of God, or the professing people of God. Verse 1 he says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. These words are almost overwhelming because in Romans 1 he spoke about the sins of bestiality, the blackest sins in the book. And then he turns to the professing people of God who were very quick to judge the Romans and the Gentiles and he said, who are you to judge the Romans when in your own hearts you are no better than the Romans. They do it outwardly, you do it inwardly. Great Martin Luther said this, the righteous invariably try to see their own faults and overlook the faults of others. On the other hand, the unrighteous look for good in themselves and for evil in others. And so Paul says, who do you think you are to criticize others who are you to criticize the people of Hollywood? Who are you to criticize the adulterers and the fornicators when you go to church, but in your own hearts you are no better? Jesus, our Lord, told the famous story of the two worshipers. One was a publican, one was a bad man, a sinner. And the other one was a Pharisee or a churchgoer. And Jesus said they both went up to the temple to pray. And one prayed with himself. The Pharisee said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, like the Gentiles and like the sinners. 
because I fast, I pay my tithe, and I keep the law of God. But the other man, who was an, an open sinner, the Bible says, Jesus says, would not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and cried out, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, it was the sinner who cried out for mercy who was saved. But in Romans chapter 2, Paul turns to the greatest religionist that the world has ever seen and said, who are you to judge the others when in your own hearts you are doing the same things? And we're going to see today that the greatest crimes in the history of the human race have been, have been committed by the professed people of God. Now notice verse 2. Now we know, Romans 2 verse 2, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Now when God has a judgment, my friend, you're not going to have a crooked jury, and you're not going to have crooked attorneys, and you're not going to have a crooked judge, and you're not going to have a crooked verdict. And you won't be able to buy your way out of murder or any other crime. The Bible says God's judgment is based on truth because God is a righteous God and God knows. Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? The Bible says that very often the person who is the most critical of his brother is the person, my friend, who is doing the same thing in secret. This is the teaching of Scripture. When you meet a person who is a super critic, invariably that person who is criticizing his brother, that person is committing the same sins, but he's doing it in secret. His brother may be innocent, but the Bible says that invariably the person who is continually criticizing his own brother is the person who is guilty of the same sin. You know the story, of course, in the Bible, of the woman who was caught in adultery in the very act, and they said to Jesus, what are we going to do? Are we going to stone her? Jesus said, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to pick up a stone. Alan White makes the interesting comment that, comment that the people who were criticizing her and who wanted to stone her were the ones who had been sleeping with her. No person, my friend, is more covered by sin inwardly than the legalist who is critical of his brother. The Bible says here that the person who does the criticizing invariably is the person who is the most guilty. Would you please read the next verse? And then I want to tell you a story. Verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Look at verse 4 again. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? My friend, we can presume on the mercy of God. 
Many people say, because we are blessed, and because I am healthy, and because I am strong, and because I am wealthy, this is an indication that I can sin and God will still bless me. God says, don't presume on the grace of God. There was a man many years ago in America who wrote to the editor of a Christian newspaper. He said, Mr. Editor, please explain this one to me. Ask your readers to explain this. I planted on the Sabbath. I worked on the Sabbath. I watered on the Sabbath. I harvested on the Sabbath, and I got the best crop of potatoes in May. Explain that. And a Christian wrote back and said, Dear Mr. Editor, please tell your potato man that God doesn't settle all his accounts in May. For the person, my friend, who is working on the Sabbath and breaking the Sabbath and presuming upon the mercy of God, remember this, God doesn't settle all his accounts in January or February or in March or in 1996, but God does settle his accounts. The Bible says that there is a righteous God and the Bible says that there is coming a judgment day. Don't ever presume upon the mercy of God because although God is long-suffering and merciful and full of patience, God is still a God of justice. Never forget it. Remember the man who went to Hyde Park in London, the atheist, and held up his watch and said, I will demonstrate that there is no God. He said, if there is a God, I defy him to strike me dead in 60 seconds. Held up his watch and counted off the seconds. And when the 60 seconds had elapsed, he turned with a smile to the audience and said, I've just proved there is no God. And an old man down the front stood up and said, the poor fool he thinks he can exhaust the patience of God in 60 seconds. He's got a lot to learn, hasn't he? You will not exhaust the patience of God in 60 seconds or 60 minutes or 60 days. But my friend, there is a line that is crossed by rejecting the Lord where the cry of the Spirit is lost. As you travel along with the pleasure-mad throng, have you counted? Have you counted the cost? The Bible says that God is a God of grace and a God of mercy and a God of long-suffering and a God of patience. But the Bible says that God is also the God of justice and the God of the judgment. Uh, would you please read on in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, where the apostle describes what God is going to do. A verse... Six, God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. 
first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. You notice it says here that in the judgment we're going to be judged by what we did. In the judgment we are not going to be judged by grace or by faith. Did you notice that? It says that we're going to be judged by our works. In the judgment when a person comes before the throne of God he is judged according to the record of his life. Why? Because the works are the evidence of my faith. I can talk and talk about faith. I can talk about grace. But my friend, unless there is shown in my life works of love and mercy and obedience, then it is simply talk. And in the judgment, God is not simply interested in talk. You see, I would not work my soul to save for this my Lord hath done, but I would work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. Obedience will never save you, but obedience is the fruitage of salvation. Obedience is presented in the judgment as the evidence of where a person's heart is and whether he has genuine faith or not. And the Bible says here, these are strong words, it says to the evildoer there is tribulation, there is distress, dis, uh, distress, there is the horror of an awful blackness and an awful darkness. The wages of sin is death. We should never, never, never forget it that the way of the transgressor is hard. And the Bible says, by contrast to the person who by persistence in doing good seeks for glory and honor and immortality, he is going to receive everlasting life. And heaven starts in this lifetime. A lady whom we baptized in Nizhny Novgorod four years ago wrote me a letter and I have a testimony on my desk. And she said, four years ago in Nizhny Novgorod, you said to the Russian people, the happiest people in the world are the people who follow Jesus and obey God's laws. She said, I said to myself, it's easy for you to say this because you are a person living in affluent America. It is easy to say the happiest people are the people who obey God. But she said, four years later, I am still in poverty. I am still struggling, but she said, everywhere I go, I give the testimony. The happiest people in the world are the people who obey God. She said, I am filled with joy and peace since I found Jesus Christ. Amen. And since I have been obeying his law, Romans chapter 2 is a thunderbolt from the throne of God to tell us it is going to be well with the righteous, but the wicked are going to suffer and they're going to fall into damnation. And the Bible tells us these things so that we will cry for mercy and come to Christ for salvation. Amen. And the Bible says, do not presume upon the mercy of God. Not saved by works, but we're saved by a faith that works. Would you please read on in this great and powerful chapter. Romans chapter 2 and verse... 12, all who sin apart from the law 
will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. And come down to verse 16 because this follows on. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Oh, my friend, what a bolt. What a thunderbolt from the throne of God. The Bible says that God is going to judge my secrets. Have you got some secrets? You haven't? Because God knows the heart. And the Bible says in the judgment we are going to be judged according to our secrets. Omar Khayyam wrote the words, The moving finger writes, and having writ moves on. Nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line. Nor all your tears wash out a word of it. Everything you and I have done, everything is recorded. Well, you say, I don't like this. You better like it because it's the truth. The moving finger writes, and having writ, moves on. It's written. Nor all your piety nor wit shall lure it back to cancel half a line, nor all your tears wash out a word of it. Crying, sobbing, praying will never wash out the record of the secrets. Except the blood of Jesus. Except the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus alone will avail in the judgment. I tell you, my friend, unless you have flown like a bird to the mercy seat, unless you are crying for mercy, then forget it. Don't come up in the judgment and proudly say, I have kept the law because none of us have. Don't come up in the judgment and say, Regard me in my innocency because God knows the guilty thoughts of our hearts and the moving finger writes and having writ moves on and it's there written down and there's only one thing that can expunge from the celestial record the story of our lives and that is the blood of Christ and this chapter is written so that you and I will flee to the fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, where sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Therefore, I say to every person in the church, every person watching on television, here we are condemned by the law of God. There's only one hope. Come, come, come quickly. And come to the blood of Jesus before the door of mercy closes. Amen. Don't presume upon the mercy of our God. Notice verses 14 and 15. And Paul more or less tosses these in somewhat out of context. But when you're an apostle, you can do those things. Indeed, when Gentiles, not the Gentiles, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, 
They are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This passage is misunderstood by some to teach that Gentiles can be saved by what they do. The text is not saying that. It says that when Gentiles who don't have the law, when Gentiles, not the Gentiles, when Gentiles, when some Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature things, some things, that the law demands, it shows that they have another law that is written on their hearts and their thoughts accuse them and sometimes excuse them. It doesn't say that they're going to be saved because of what they did or else it would be teaching righteousness by works. The text is saying that even the Gentiles cannot come before the throne of God and say, I did not have an opportunity because God has even written the law of God upon their own hearts. And the Bible says that those who are in the law and break the law will perish in the law like the professing people of God. And those who did not have the law of God and sin will perish outside the law. This text so far, all of these texts are telling us that the human race is lost and doomed and damned. All of us. None righteous, no righteous church members, no righteous people in the world. Nobody is ready for the judgment. Paul tells us these things so that we will flee like a bird to the mountain of the grace of God. And I say it to you again today, don't stand before God in your own righteousness. Don't come before God and insult him by saying, I have kept the law of God and I am a perfect man. None of us are righteous. We are all condemned, but thank God there is mercy and there is grace. And that is the gospel. But my friend, many of us have never come to God. Many of us have never gone to the gospel because we don't feel our need. We think we're good enough. That's the reason. Verse 17 and onwards. How a person could ever be self-righteous after this chapter is beyond me. Verse 17, Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, the chosen, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, hey, I belong to the remnant church. Hey, I'm the only true church in the world, you know. We're going home to glory. If you know His will and approve of what is superior, because you are instructed by the law. If you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Listen to this. Listen to this. Back in these days, the Jews 
were the chosen people called by God. They had much, much to boast about. They were the remnant church. They were the custodians of the Holy Scriptures. They were the teachers of the law. The problem is, they never kept it. One commentary, the Adventist commentary says this, Yet it seems to have been a popular opinion among the Jews that so long as they observed the rites and ceremonies of their religion, God would not judge them as severely as he would the abandoned and idolatrous Gentiles. They felt that their nationality ensured them special considerations in the judgment. This false notion was rebuked by John the Baptist. Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Sin is sin wherever and by whomever it is committed. Nor does it become less sinful by being committed in the midst of religious privileges. The people of God have no special license to sin. On the contrary, the Bible consistently teaches that the most serious sins among men are those that are committed by the professed people of God. I ask you, is there a parallel between the ancient professing people of God and the people who call themselves the members of the remnant church? Let me remind you, that only the religion that comes from God can lead to God. And if you have the false religion, it is a curse. Not all religion is from God, and only the religion that came from God can lead us to God. But the world is filled with false religion. The greatest crimes in the history of the world have been committed by religious people. The Inquisition where a hundred million people were tortured by people who went to church seven or eight times a week and who spent hours saying their prayers and they tortured people to death. The greatest crime in the history of the world was the murder of God's Son. The murder of God's Son was not carried out by unreligious people, but by the greatest religionists in the history of the world. If you're a religious person, beware. If you mix with religious people, beware. Because only the religion that comes from God and that is based on the gospel and the word of God and the truth can lead us to God. Religion will not save us. Christ alone saves us. Christ alone saves us. Mm -hmm. Read on. And now it talks about genuine Christianity. Romans 2. Oh, I'm glad I never wrote this chapter. People would criticize me for that. Mm -hmm. Verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law. Why was circumcision? It was outward sign in the flesh to say this person was a part of the church. It says, circumcision's great, it's fine if you keep the law. Circumcision has value, value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, 
will not they be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Now, circumcision is basically a term in the Bible that means you belong. You're in the church. You belong to the holy people. You're part of the remnant. The Bible says that's fine if in your heart you obey God. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Read on. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. So what is Paul saying? He's saying true Christianity is a matter of what? The heart. True Christianity is not an outward sign in the flesh. It's inside. Some of you know the story I tell about Will. The king said to him, I'm giving you this mansion. I want you to work in the garden, grow these beautiful trees. But don't let the dark, mysterious stranger come in. He's on the loose. The king went away, and Will worked in the yard. But it was hard work. It's tedious. One night late, he heard a rattling at the gate, and he went down, and there was a being that looked like an angel and said, Will, if you let me in, I'll do it all for you. And Will forgot the words of the king, and he said, Come in. And the stranger came in, and he was as good as his word. He went around and he started to plant trees. He rooted up the other trees, but he planted trees. And how quickly they grew. Lust, hate, envy, jealousy, disobedience. Then he said, we'll come and taste. The fruit came on quicker than he had ever imagined. And as he tasted it, oh, it tasted good. But as soon as he had tasted it, he felt nauseated. And he vomited and threw up. But it was strange that even though he got nauseated and threw up, he wanted more. And he spent his days eating, enjoying, feeling nauseated, vomiting, eating, wanting more. And life was a curse. And he no longer sat on the veranda. He had to work like a slave. And he wished, oh, that God would help me in my dilemma, that God would lift me out of this pit of sin. And one evening, he heard a knocking at the gate. The stranger said, don't go down there, don't go down. But he went down, and there was a man who looked like the king. He was the son of the king. And he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. But the dark stranger said, don't let him in, Will. He'll destroy all my work. That was the best news that Will had ever heard. He opened the door and the prince came in. And as soon as the prince came in, the dark stranger went out. When he comes in, when the big God comes in, all the little gods go out. Amen. He said, well, we got a lot of work to do here. He said, I can't do it by myself. And neither can you. But we've got to dig up these trees. And they had long roots. It is hard to dig them up. And then the prince said, we're going to plant some other trees. Love, joy, peace, contentment, unselfishness. And my friend, those trees took longer to grow. They took longer to grow. And then the prince said, Will, come and sample the fruit. And Will plucked the fruit, love, joy, temperance, goodness, meekness. It tasted beautiful. And he never got sick. And he never threw up. For the first time, he knew what it was to have peace. One evening as the sun was going down, he sat on the veranda with the Lord and said, there's one thing that troubles me. Maybe you'll go away. And the prince said to Will, I will never, never leave you, nor forsake you. And the story ends, he never did. Please bow your heads. Now, Father, this chapter is a thunderbolt from your th throne. It tells us of our human depravity. Religious people are often the worst. That's us. Because where the Gentiles sin outwardly, we do it inside. And we condemn others. Oh God, today we want Jesus to come into our hearts. We want him to root up those old trees of sin and plant some new trees. And we believe that as we eat the fruit of these new trees, love, joy, peace, contentment, obedience, humility, we will taste and see that the Lord is good. As we're praying in church today with every head bowed and every eye closed in the presence of God, who will raise a hand and say, I want today to have the prince come into my home and in my heart. Lift up your hand. Who today desires to say, I want the record of my sins to be covered with the blood of Jesus. Put up your hands if you say that. I want the secrets of my life to be covered by the blood of Jesus. I want to be cleansed today. Oh God, wash me, cleanse me. Wash away my sins, come into my heart, and fill me with the fruits of righteousness. Who can say that today? 
Lift up your hands. Oh God, bless these upraised hands, these upraised hearts. We thank you, we bless you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.